Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Hey, welcome back to the uh, Parker's Pensies podcast. I'm your host, Parker Sedicase. Uh, I've got a couple of degrees in theology, and I'm working on another in philosophy of religion. And throughout my time, throughout my studies, I've had some really off- awesome conversations with just amazing people. But unfortunately, those are just lost uh, in the sands of time because I didn't record them. So the goal of this podcast, then, is to record these awesome conversations and then share them with you so you get to learn as I learn. Uh, I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about divine ideas. It's going to be another episode on divine ideas. It's part two, kind of, of um, a conversation with Dr. Thomas Ward on his Cambridge Elements book called Divine Ideas. Today, we're going to be focusing in more on simplicity and divine ideas and uh, exemplarism and, and how can God be simple if he has like different aspects of his thought, which are exemplified in things like lions? So it's going to be a really fun one. I'm super excited for it. Before we jump in, I want to thank everyone over on Patreon who's supporting the podcast, making this happen. Like I've said before, I would love to do this full time. I'd love to be uh, traveling out to, to Dr. Ward's office and, uh, and be sitting down with him, having a, a, a better conversation in person. So um, if you guys have benefited from this podcast, please consider supporting me on Patreon. You can find a link in the description. And there's all sorts of other benefits and goodies, free books and stickers and mugs over there on Patreon. So please uh, consider becoming a Patreon patron. Um, also, you can join us on Facebook. There's a, uh, a Facebook group called Parker's Pensies Pensiers. And uh, I don't know how to say the last word in English or French, but uh, it's Parker's Thinker's Parker's Thoughts Thinkers, something like that. Um, go check that out. Join, and uh, you can talk with some of my guests about their ideas. You can talk with me about my ideas, and it's a, it's an awesome time. It's turning out to be a really fun group. So go find that group on Facebook. Uh, without further ado, though, let's jump into Divine Ideas. <clears throat> Tom, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast, man. Thanks for having me, Parker. Yeah, so um, last time we had an amazing conversation, and I asked you about all the all the weird stuff that your your view entailed, and uh, it was so great. It's it's I've been thinking about it a lot, but we read your book in uh, Paul Gould's ontology class, and so I had another take on it, and I wanted to ask you some follow ups on simplicity because we didn't get to hit that last time. But um, for those who haven't heard the first episode, they you should go back and listen right now. But maybe we can give them a little refresher um, by starting with. Why can't God just make stuff up? I thought this was so interesting in your book. And you give a kind of a, a dilemma for uh, at least the conceptualist who says that God can just create stuff out of nothing, just come up with uh, brand new ideas. Yeah, uh, this this make stuff up view is actually a, a view that I myself was a, 
attracted to a few years ago. Um, it seems to be very God honoring you. We ascribe to God in that sort of view, this incredible creativity, not just to be able to create a world ex nihilo, uh, as Christian theologians have always maintained, but to think up concepts as it were ex nihilo, that is, mm -hmm. uh, just brand new, utterly original. What eventually led me against that view. And I try to spell this out in the book a little bit is that, uh, uh, is basically reflection on, a some lines from Brian Leftow's book, God and necessity that, um, <clears throat> ended up being, uh, Com compelling to me on this point. So the basic idea kind of ad adapting a, a thought of left out um, is that if God does make up a concept utterly original, mm -hmm. um, he can't intend to make up that particular concept. So, you know, imagine the uh, God's uh, concept of the giraffe and prior to thinking up, the giraffe, let's suppose um, there is no form of the giraffe, universal giraffe. God has never before thought up giraffe. So he, one day he thinks up giraffe. Now, could God have intended to think up the giraffe? Well, no, because if he intends to think up giraffe concept, mm -hmm. de novo, well, then he's already thinking about the giraffe which he is intending to think up. So anything that God thinks up from nothing, um, he does so in some sense, non-intentionally. Mm -hmm. And we can qualify that a little bit. It's not utterly accidental. God perhaps has some intentional control over maybe something like the type of thing he uh, intends to think up, but mm -hmm. Um, he cannot think up with any specificity. Uh, he, he cannot intend to think up with any specificity anything he thinks up. Now, the problem with that for uh, this makes stuff up view, the problem is that it saddles God, so to speak, with a sub-rational sort of activity that mm -hmm. God acts um uh, that God engages in some personal action that is not intentional. And in the book, I argue that this is a, a kind of uh, uh, failing to ascribe God some perfection or honor that is probably due him. Yeah. Now, a natural response would be, well, if that's just the way that, that if it's true that, that that's, uh, why there are the creatable natures there are that God just thinks them up and that's just how it's got to be. Well, then of course it wouldn't be dishonoring to God or it wouldn't be failing to ascribe to God some perfection uh, that he really has because that's just the way metaphysics works. And so it's no failure there. It's no, it's no lack there. Um, so that's uh, perhaps possible that that turns out to be true but what the the kind of dialectical strategy in the book is to suggest that we don't have to go that way there's this better 
uh, view on offer, um, a certain modification of conceptualism uh, that I call um, exemplarism. Um, and that's that's what I developed in the book after that. Yeah. yeah. So, I thought I there thought was, there was um, um, I mean, feedback, feedback again. again. Hopefully, Hopefully it stops. It stops. So, I, nope, no, it's not it's stopped. Stopped. Um, okay, so that's the difference between like your view and and um, Dr. Welty's view, for instance. That the idea of a uh, giraffe is just eternally in the mind of God, and that's kind of how it is. It's just that's they're there, and there's no explanation for them because we're at ground level. And you're saying, hey, we we can go a little bit further if we say the the giraffe, and this is going in further into your into your idea. The giraffe is a exemplar, and there's something about God's nature that is giraffe. Well. Giraffe-ish, uh, something like that. So, um, oh man, I keep hearing myself. It's really distracting. Um, I'm gonna power through it. So, uh, do you remember your your talk about? I, I don't know how to pronounce it, but gam gambouge gam gambouge. Yeah, yeah. Can you can you repersonate that for us? <laughs> um. <sighs> Well, I remember using the color. Do I do I use a, that particular example in the when I criticize the makes stuff up view, or do I talk about that in introducing my own exemplarist take? Uh, yeah, that's a a problem for the making stuff up view. Yeah, and that and that's the God's lack of intentional control over, um, in this case, color concepts. Yeah, so he's just uh, you say you say suppose for example that uh, gambouge is a color just thought up by God, answering no to no uh, eternal exemplar either in God Himself or in an ex- abstract realm. On this supposition, if God hadn't just made up gambouge, gambouge uh, would not so much have even been a possible color for things to be. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love, yeah, it's um, super, super interesting problem. Um, and it's super interesting to think that God um, has like even color, like exemplarness. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, this is the, this is one part of the view that um, some, some readers have really balked at that, that it makes God out to be too earthy or yeah. too creaturely. And I, I'm certainly sympathetic. It's, it's, um, you know, the, the strategy here is not, it's nothing like, uh, Hey, how can I develop a conception of God on which he is as creaturely as possible? You know, not, not in the least it's, um, it, instead it's, it's thinking through some of the, what I take to be, um kind of theological or religious uh guideposts or constraints on a a god honoring or worshipful doctrine of creation um so on the one hand i reject the what i call this mix stuff up view for reasons already discussed and then you know you might think a, a happy alternative to that is that there are abstract objects mm-hmm. um universals and so on and god gets his in this giraffe or gamboge concept by um, um 
being cognitively in touch with the whole abstract realm. After all, if God is omniscient, uh, he he would be perfectly cognitively in touch with the whole abstract realm. And, and so, and now I'm, I'm against uh, this view that there are abstract objects, um, not for any nominalist considerations. I mean, as far as that goes, um, my inclinations lean realist mm-hmm. more so than nominalist, but instead I reject the, um, the conjunction of abstract objects and theism because uh, it seems to me that the um, uh, a, an abstract realm fully populated, completely independent of God um, leaves God not in charge <laughs> A very, a very much at all. Right. Leaves God dependent uh, for his knowledge. Leaves God constrained in the sort of worlds that he can make by the population of the abstract realm. And it, it seems to me that um, unless we are utterly compelled by, um, uh, by metaphysics and logic to go the way of abstractionism that we should we should try to come up with some other view so the so the view that i developed is is it's a it's a nuanced uh, a, a qualification of a very old view the thought is that god is somehow the source of everything that can be um and then in what sense source so one common thought you get this in uh aquinas Scotus, anselm Bonaventure, many, many others, is that not, it's not just that God has ideas of everything that he might create, and so God's ideas can uh, replace an abstract objects. In addition to God's having all of these ideas, we get something like a story of why there are the ideas there are, mm-hmm. uh, and that story involves God himself, the divine essence, as the exemplar of all possible creatures, uh, creaturely types, even even individuals, that there's something about God that is exemplary parkerness, even, yeah. not just exemplary humanity and so on. Hmm. And then that, thinking through that exemplar, um, relation between God and every possible creature suggests that there's something um, giraffe Parkery, Gamboji about the divine essence itself. And it's, it's because of content that is already, so to speak in God mm-hmm. that um, the diversified creaturely realm has the possible content that it has. Yeah. And that if if it weren't in God, it couldn't be in creation. Yeah, and I like the um I like that you're uh in, instead of saying this is the way it has to be because there's a platonic realm, it's saying this is the way it has to be because of God and and who he is. Yeah. And so um there might still be a mystery there in how can God have this partnerness, but it, at least it's the mystery is found in God and not some abstract realm where where that's the uh furniture of the 
possible universes that God has to deal with. So then you have this exemplarist view. Um, and then there's, there's a couple different ways you can go, I think, with the exemplarist view. There's a, a imitative theory uh, of divine ideas and then the containment theory. And I'm pretty sure yours is the containment theory, right? Yeah. Can you explain the imitative and why we wouldn't want to go that route? Yeah. Um, partly it has to do with the image that you've chosen as your background for this talk. Yeah. Um, I don't know. For those uh, watching, I don't know if you can see the prism in the background, or for those listening, you, you won't be able to see anything, but um, it's, a, it's a pretty famous prism image, uh, the clear crystal, crystal prism with the light shining through it, and then the, uh, the rainbow light jetting out. So now you think, think of this, think of the white light as the divine essence, right? And then think of the colored light as that one essence refracted into this multiplicity. And, and so the colored lights can kind of represent different ways that creatures can be. And the white light represents the divine essence. So the, the diversified creatures somehow come from God. So whatever whatever creation is, it's in part that activity by which God refracts himself, obviously not diminishing in any way what he himself is. God himself is not being broken in the act of creation, but so the, the analogy is limited, but you can see how it, see how it goes. And I, I think it's a beautiful image of creation and of, the, and of the relationship between creatures and God. But one problem I've always had with the image is that the prism itself is um, not God, mm -hmm. and it's not a creature. I mean, if it's a creature, then it can't really work. And it, you know, it's that's right because all the it's the it's the colored lights that are supposed to be creatures, but the prism isn't the colored light. The prism is the that by which the light is uh, refracted into the to the colors. So there's this. Um, you know, mysterious third thing, neither God nor creature that would be, that would function as, as the prism. So if we were taking the analogy metaphysically really seriously, what would play the role of the prism? Um, now, you know, maybe, maybe uh, the second person of the Trinity with respect to its personal property or something like that, but I, I haven't thought through all of that. Oh yeah. Um, hmm. But the, uh, the, the 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 thought here in rejecting this prism analogy because the prism is this third thing that is too mysterious. I say the uh, the imit the imitative view of uh, e exemplarism has to hold that there is <clears throat> something about an imitation of God in virtue of which it really does imitate God, mm -hmm. but then something else about it, in virtue of which it imitates imperfectly or to a limited degree. So when someone like Aquinas says that God's idea of a creature is God's idea of some way in which he may be imitated, I my concern with that is that while it, it may well be true, and I, I do think it's true, in fact, that Every 
possible creature imitates God in some way. I don't think that God's knowledge of that possible creature amounts to his knowledge of the way in which he can be imitated uh, because the, the thing that's supposed to be doing the imitating mm-hmm. has to have something about it that is uh, in virtue of which it imitates God, something about it in virtue of which it's not imitating, uh, in which it's not like God. Uh, you know, the difference, the difference between the imitation and the thing that's imitated, yeah. there has to be some difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what is the, what is the difference? God has to be aware of the difference and not just the similarity between a creaturely idea and himself. And if, if he weren't, if he weren't aware of that distinction between the create uh, the, the creator, the creator creature distinction in a particular thing that would mess with his omniscience, right? There'd be the, all this stuff that he doesn't know, tons and tons of stuff yeah. that he, he doesn't know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. So the, what the Thomas does basically is says, in, in general, um, relations, and imitation is a kind of relation, in general, relations depend on uh, their non-relational foundations. You know, okay. Relations relate things that, mm-hmm. are, that themselves are not relations. And so here in the imitative theory, we would say, um, you know, ordinarily, if, if we don't have a very special case, we'd say there's the thing, and then there's the Im- the relationship of imitation that the thing has toward God. Um, but Aquinas seems Aquinas's view seems to be that God's that there is no distinction here between the thing and the imitation of the thing. That God's idea of a possible creature just is the idea of the imitation. Now. There's at least one um, context in which Aquinas seems fine to say that a relation and a thing can just be the same thing. And that's um, in his Trinitarian theology, the relations somehow constitute the divine persons as persons. Um, And that's, of course, a very special case. Um, In this imitative theory of God's ideas of creatures, Aquinas doesn't explicitly say that he needs a similar kind of move that God's idea of a creature just is God's idea of a relation. Um, and here it's okay that things and relations are exactly the same thing. He doesn't say that, but you might think we're we're open. I mean, it's, it's, it's open on Aquinas's view to say, well, here's yet one more instance in which relations and relata have to be identified with each other. Mm Mm-hmm. But um, I'm not I'm I'm not convinced that we should go there um, on on this particular issue. So the the containment theory, by contrast, I think on this point at least is a little. Um, I almost said simpler, but that opens a can <laughs> of worms that I, I think we're going to open in a couple minutes here. Right. Um, the containment theory says. God's, uh, God would be aware of all of the ways in which creaturely natures imitate God, but God's knowledge of those creaturely ways of being is not constituted by his knowledge of their 
imitation of himself. Instead, God's knowledge of these essences or natures um, is uh, first and foremost a way of knowing himself. Yeah. And then, so to speak, by isolating some content that belongs to divinity, isolating in thought some aspect of the divine essence, God has his idea of, of, of a creature, but the, instead of, uh, instead of holding that God's ideas of creatures are constituted by ideas of imitations, he says that God, the containment theory says that God's ideas of creatures are constituted by, um, uh, thinking, thinking about some aspect of his own essence. Yeah. And so I I don't know if you've, I don't think you did this, uh, in the, in the element, but, would that be contained contained uh, in God's necessary knowledge? Is that like, so he knows all his creatures because he, he can know himself? Are we talking, is that a different category and, and we shouldn't go there? Yeah, no, there would, be, there would be a distinction between the creatures that God actually makes in a world. Um, but every, but modal space on this view would be just as, um, just as necessary as you know, a full, a full on S five modal logic would have it be. Okay. Um, because it would all be derivative, so to speak, from God's very essence, yeah. which is um, not only necessarily existing, but is the way it is uh, necessarily and not contingently, and can't change. Uh, and so on. So, okay. so if if I'm understanding the question correctly, God's all of God's ideas of creatures would be um, necessary. They God couldn't have other other ideas from what He has. Now, God would have ideas of um, contingent contingent truths or contingent things like the existence of this world. Um, and all of the things in it and God's, uh, idea, perhaps it's a a idea, idea that has propositional structure, but God's idea that Parker exists in fact, Mm -hmm. um, uh, or even, yeah, Parker exists. In fact, that would, uh, that would be something that is contingently true. And so God could have failed to have that idea say failing to create you. Right. Okay. But, but, um, yes. Okay. I gotcha. But he couldn't have come up with like a different way for the giraffe to be because on this exemplar view that there's something well, let's do with the lion because I, I finally learned how to pronounce Leonine. Oh, so yeah. there's, he couldn't make a lion different because the the lion actually represents, exemplifies an aspect of, of the divine nature, right? Yeah. But yeah. he could have chosen not to create a lion. He just couldn't have chosen to create a lion that is has different properties than a lion has. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, we, we, we want to be clear about 
um, the uses of words versus the the things the words are referring to. So if you know another way of getting at the same idea is you know could uh, I mean uh, so could could we imagine a lion that is in every way like a lion but has a horn like a like a unicorn's mm. horn and. and yeah, surely we can imagine that. Now, you could ask, could could God have made the lion like that instead of, or, or could 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 the universal lion have been have included the property of being horned? You know, uh, I I don't. Th- think that that makes much sense but could could there be unbeknownst to us a nature that is the the horned lion hmm. and yeah i mean that maybe may i mean it would depend on you know whether horned and lion concept are uh, compatible with each other in such a way that they could unite to form a real possible nature. I mean, if, if for whatever, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want my imaginative capacity to be the sole arbiter of possibility. And so of course, of course it's easier to, it's easy to picture a horn on a lion. Um, no problem there, but if I'm, if I'm being careful, I I don't want to jump the gun here but yeah. you know if if hor- being horned and being a lion are more like uh being uh furry and orange and uh, and less like being round and square yeah then yeah god would have an idea of the horned lion and it and it too would be um derivative from some aspect of God's own nature. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. So this brings us to the, the simplicity uh, question um, because there's these aspects. I think uh, you're parsing. I don't know how to say this either. Is it rationes? Rationes. Rationes. Okay. Uh, yeah. And I think you're, you're parsing that as an aspect, right? Yeah. And so there um, there's these different aspects to the divine nature um, like this aspect of being Leonine or Leoninus, like that is an aspect of God. And yet I think like you're, you're a good Catholic yourself. Like you, you, you need to hold on to simplicity. Um, how, how, help me out with those two. Like how can we have simplicity and this containment theory of divine ideas where there are different aspects to the simple being of God? Yeah, this is hard. Um, and so I, I think I think my answer here is um, not completely satisfying even to myself, um, but I think I can say some things that um, maybe make the problem not so peculiar to my own view. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> so, so the the first thing that's um, you know that. Everyone who's think, trying to think through simplicity, it's kind of a buzzy topic right now, but right. You know, we're all revisiting this uh, 
arcane feature of classical theism and uh, trying to think really carefully about it. One thing that we all recognize is that that we attribute um, a multiplicity of attributes to God. Right. And uh, certainly any Christian philosopher is going to be committed to God's really being just and merciful and loving and so on. And so one challenge for the supporter of divine simplicity is to have a, a rational account of how we can have a multiplicity of attributes in God that, um, while preserving the simplicity of the divine essence. And at that level, um, there's really no substantive difference between the the view I end up, the, 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 the problems I take on by adopting these uh, exemplary rationes in God and the problems that any Christian metaphysician takes on by recognizing a multiplicity of divine attributes compatible with the simplicity of the divine essence. Mm-hmm. Um, you might say something arbitrary like, well, there are about 20 attributes, let's say. But on your view, Ward, you end up with like a bajillion rationes. But that really doesn't matter for simplicity. Um, Because if you have two parts, you don't have a simple thing um, on a common way of understanding simplicity. And and, And likewise, if you have a bajillion parts, you don't have simplicity. So I'm not... In, in that sense, I'm not too concerned about um, the implications of the view for simplicity, just the sheer um, number of of these rationes or aspects or formalities. Um, so, so that's that. But I, I am concerned. Um, I don't know how to make simplicity make sense and I, and I don't need it to all make sense, Mm -hmm. but I need it not to feel like I'm saying contradictory things when I Mm -hmm. think about God and speak about God. So um, one thing that I've been very um, moved by over the years is the way in which Aquinas develops his doctrine of divine simplicity as part of his via negativa, mm-hmm. um, that we have, we have a positive word simple, um, that we can apply to the view, but Aquinas himself thinks that we, we arrive at simplicity as an, as a negation. So as a negation of what God can't be right. given other things that were committed to God being, and most importantly for the divine simplicity uh, discussion, given that God is the unmoved mover, uh, it falls out that he can't have, he can't be composed in any of the senses or modes of composition that Aquinas recognizes. Um, And if you, if you can't be composed, um, of any parts and you can exist and do exist, then you exist without having any parts at all. Um, and so we, and we have a word for that. It's simple. Yeah. 
right. So that's that's how that's how the dialectic is uh, is supposed to work. Now, notice how that's different from uh, you know doing some kind of back of the envelope perfect being kind of calculations. You're like, okay, uh, what's better, simple or not simple? <laughs> right. Like, uh, if I've been if I've been trained up in what simplicity means when we're thinking about God stuff, mm-hmm. then I might say, oh, well, uh, not, not, not simple implies complex and complex implies put together by something else yeah. and put together by something else means movable uh, or changeable. Well, then, you know, I'd, I'd be predisposed to give the perfect being answer to that question as right. ah, simplicity. That's better. But I think that, again, absent that kind of um, pretty high level uh, cl- classical theism reflection, is it is it better to be a simple thing or a composed thing? I, I don't think that our... Um, judgments about value mm-hmm. perfection um really tell us one way or another on that so so it'd be i think it, the story would be uh you know it seems like it would be strange to arrive at simplicity as somehow given by a perfect being kind of reflection um yes. so i i do i do think it's metaphysically significant that simplicity is developed in the probably the most canonical source Aquinas is this negative doctrine. Now I think that, uh, uh, for the, for Aquinas's view to work, we have to agree with him about the following assumption that anything that, um, has complexity has parts. Mm-hmm. And secondly, that anything that has parts, um, Either can, uh, either has been put together, or can be taken apart, or both. Yeah. Now, suppose you just denied that second assumption, or or that you were just agnostic about that second assumption. Like, does parthood itself imply um, generability or corruptibility? I. I find in myself no <laughs> intuitions there when I yeah. consider that that assumption. And notice that that assumption, uh, parthood implies corruptibility. It's a purely metaphysical assumption. It's not strictly theological. It's meant to be totally generalizable to any complex thing whatsoever. Yeah, I, I make that point because it's not the, the 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 kind of linchpin assumption of the strong simplicity argument, at least as we find in Aquinas, it's not a theological claim or a theological assumption, let alone a dogmatic assumption or claim. It's a metaphysical assumption about the nature of parthood. It's a great point. And I think that we should feel free to reject it, uh, at least free on theological grounds to reject that assumption. Now, it could be that better metaphysicians than I could swoop in at this point and say, you, you'd better hold on to that assumption. Uh, either it's obvious or 
It's 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 denial entails this contradiction that you haven't foreseen, Ward. So I'm certainly open to correction on that. But just as a kind of strategy for thinking through simplicity, I am uh, quite moved by the fact that uh, the complexity implies corruptibility claim is a metaphysical assumption and not a theological or dogmatic one. Yeah. So then from so maybe I should just I haven't got to the view that I try to develop in the book, but well, and, and I know I've been talking for a long time. No, so. it's, it's so good. Um, you, I think you're opting a little bit more for a, for a SCOTUS view. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I, I do think that the views, uh, I, mean, I certainly have, have been inspired by SCOTUS in the view. I'm not trying to interpret SCOTUS with any precision in the book. And so as a, as a SCOTUS scholar, where sometimes I, do try to say what Scotus thought and why he thought it. I'm, I don't do that in the book, but I do think of the view as broadly Scotist. And I think that the way that the divine simplicity conversations are going on right now and the way that Scotus gets invoked in those, um, I think it's probably fair to describe my view as, as Scotist. Okay. Um, the, there's an article by Thomas Williams and Jeff Steele recently, I think, it was either 2019 or 20 American Catholic philosophical quarterly. It's gotten um, as academic articles go on these sorts of topics. I think it's, it's gotten a lot of press uh, in these worlds. Um, uh, complexity without composition or uh, complexity composition without complexity. I forget, I forget the title, but the, yeah, the but basic idea is that we can, uh, on Scotus's view, uh, we can have a a sort of complexity in God that mm-hmm. does not imply composition of the sort that Aquinas and many others are concerned about. Um, whether does, it, go, does go. it have to do with um, like separable and inseparable parts? Because I, I know a little bit more of that terminology and and on that view, you can say, yeah, there's composition here, but they're inseparable parts such that like. You know, you have whole priority, and the, the things get their identity in virtue of the whole, and so it's not the same kind of uh, blockhouse, you know, Lego uh, yeah. thing going on. Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay. Um, and and then the only thing that, uh, it, not the only thing, but if we do adopt that view and just say that's that's how God is, mm-hmm. uh, He has this kind of complexity uh, where none of the parts or aspects or whatever you want to call them are separable in any way. And that's just, that's just how God is. Um, it would be nice to, to offer some kind of, uh, some kind of story about how, how that can be, or in particular, you know, if, if uh, let's say that there are 10 rationes in God and they eternally necessarily all, uh, belong together. Um, wh- why or how, or does that, is that yeah. just arbitrary bundle? And, and there, I think, um, I don't, I don't think that, uh, and one way that I've kind of begun to think through the connection between all of these, um, aspects or attributes of God is that, there does seem to be a kind of um, logical 
necessity that that binds them all together you know when you think about the way in which um divine uh you know divine justice and divine knowledge seem to be really closely linked because for god to be perfectly just um he would need to know everything that was relevant to issues of justice and you can imagine a really well-meaning judge um who's ignorant about something uh who who simply makes a mistake and there would be no no lack of a will for justice on the part of such a judge um there would only be a a lack of knowledge Mm -hmm. and yet such a judge would have failed with respect to justice. Yeah. Um, not again, not because of the bad will, but because of the lack of knowledge. So there you'd think if we're imagining a being like God to be uh, perfectly just, be, uh, perfect knowledge um, seems to be a requirement for that. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I, I think that like deep reflection on all of the divine attributes, or at least I have some, reasonable hope um, that further reflections on all of these attributes will will yield a kind of super tight connection between them that wouldn't it still wouldn't be simplicity in Aquinas's sense not by any stretch but it would be a kind of um, a kind of explanation of the incorruptibility of uh, a, a multifaceted essence like God's yeah. Um, so some people, I think maybe planning a, I'm pretty sure planning it did this, but like the aseity sovereignty doctrine. Do you, do you think that does enough to do that strong unity that you're looking for? Spell out how you're taking the strength to be. Well, so uh, maybe. Provided. Yeah, maybe uh, aseity is the thing doing uh, that work, and so you say. Um, God couldn't be perfectly just if he's not assay, if he's got to, he's got to find, there's kind of an exemplarist move here too. If he's got to look down the corridors of time, if he's got to, yeah, find something out right outside of himself. So maybe assayity is the thing that is this strong, cohesive element. Yeah, that's nice. I haven't thought about that. Um, Yeah, yeah. I'll, 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 I'll think more about that. But um, yeah, so if God is, what whatever God is, God non-derivatively is. He's not um, any way that He is due to the way that something else is. Right. Um, and any anyone who thinks that. Uh, that the abs that there's an abstract realm populated um, independently of what God is doing um, ends up having to say that God is dependent on a lot of right. uh, a lot of things. So one of the most famous rejections of complexity in God that Aquinas makes is the rejection between essence and existence. Mm-hmm. Um, that there's no. Um, there's nothing like the the divine essence 
that is prior to God's own existence, not logically prior, not temporarily prior, no priority at all. There's identity, strict identity between God's essence and existence because, you know, and this is planning a famously makes fun of Aquinas here for um, turning God into an abstract object, which misses the point. Aquinas is actually saying God's, the divine essence is not an abstract object. <laughs> um, it's the living God. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the but you could see how aseity, the way that you're taking it, could you know could lead us to a very similar kind of rejection of the essence and existence distinction in God, because we we say, well, the um, if if there if there were some distinction between God's essence considered as a universal that God instantiates and then God's existence. Well, that would be a pretty strong violation of aseity. Um, so the divine aseity kind of, as you put it, the was it glue. Was that the, it ends up like it's, it's one of those attributes that, uh, but yeah, binds, binds God together as one, totally non-derivative, um, not put togetherable, not take apartable essence. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so another another question on on aspects, uh, uh, raciones to um, are they are they like tropes? Are they you know properties? Are they characteristics? Qualities? Is is there more we can say about what an aspect is in in your conception? No. <laughs> All right. Well, that's fair. That's easy enough. Yeah, I, I really don't. I really don't know. Uh, I fear that any answer I give, I would just end up um, being subjected to you know anyone's favorite criticism of whatever view I try to invoke from you know that ha- that has been developed in some other context uh, <laughs> for some other problem. Uh, I don't want to, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure more could be said here. And I do hope, I do hope to come back to it. Um, but basically I would want to say that whatever, whatever God's love is, considered metaphysically um that that's an aspect that's an aspect of god and so however you want to construe the traditional divine attributes that everyone agrees um god has or is Mm -hmm. that's how i want to construe all these other um all these other raciones okay Um, okay, so how about divine ideas? Are are they uh, for you? Are they concrete? Are they? Um, ab- I, I would assume they're probably concrete because God's not an abstract object, and if we do have some sort of divine or strong unity, that's gonna. So, so are, are divine ideas concrete? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's just in this sense, just like um, all of your ideas, you know. Ideas considered as modes or qualities of your mind. Mm-hmm. Of course, they're all 
concrete things. Um, and, and so in God as well. Now they, they can be, um, they can have a universal aspect or quality, you know, in the sense that they can, they're ideas of things that are shareable, um, general. So in that sense, they are ideas of universals, Mm -hmm. um, or ideas that, you know, the, the, you say the giraffe is God's idea of the giraffe, um, the universal giraffe. No, it can't be that because the idea of the giraffe is the, has all and only giraffe content. Mm. Um, But the, the concept of universal giraffe has giraffe content plus the content of being universal. But being universal doesn't belong to giraffe as such. You know, witness any particular giraffe you might encounter at the zoo. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, Aquinas makes that point. I think it's a really nice point. He makes it in on being in essence uh, where he's trying to distinguish between um, what belongs to giraffe as such from what belongs to the universal giraffe um, or even uh, a, a concrete material giraffe. But, but in this case, I think the point holds. So, you know, God, God gets his idea. God, one of God's aspects uh, or one idea that God has is the, idea, the very idea of universality, you know, a, a one over many. And there we could probably say that, well, God's from eternity, a trinity of persons, one essence shared by three divine persons. So there's something about the the structure of divinity itself that uh, that yields um, a, an idea of universality. Uh, so by having the uh, giraffe giraffe content in mind and universal content in mind, these are combinable as. <laughs> universal giraffe and then then we could have a uh, kind of idea of a universal now does god think like that i don't know Uh, but it's um (laughs) but now and then we would have uh you know if there is something like a a personal or individuating property of every individual well then god would have an idea of that but that that somehow wouldn't be combinable with a universal, with being universal. Uh, there can't be more than one Parker. Yeah. So God can't God can't think of Parker as shareable by many Parkers. Okay. If we um, when when I think of a giraffe, am I thinking of the universal, which is the exemplar and then i'm thinking of that aspect of god or am i am i um abstracting out the idea from all the different drafts that i've witnessed and you know because um like conceptualists say that what you just said that um giraffe when it's a shareable thought or paul gould says it's uh abstract uh welty says that god's thoughts are concrete and so i'm wondering uh when it comes to your view yeah do when i grasp 
uh, universal. What am I, what am I doing there? Um, the, the example or the, the two choices that you gave a, uh, 20 seconds ago suggested it's a question about how I get the idea in the first place, mm. like how, how I acquire concepts like uh, giraffe concepts or. Yeah. I, I got to, well, how about just if we, if you and I talk when we're, when we're talking about like giraffe, the, the, the con, yeah, I guess not, not necessarily concept acquisition, but just when, when I am contemplating giraffe and I have this idea of a draft in my head right now, is, is that, am I getting in touch with God's idea or am I merely abstracting out my own idea of draft based on all my, you know, empirical data I have of draft? Oh, good, good. Um, the second uh, is compatible with the first. Oh, yeah, that's true. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I... I I've already mentioned Brian Leftow's book, God and Necessity, but here I'll mention um, a different Leftow story, which is when he was, when he was still at Oxford, um, I was there in 2004 and he gave a, he gave a series of lectures on the ontological argument through, through history and developed his own favorite one. But in one of the lectures, I forget how it connected to the main topic now. It's obviously a really long time ago, but he um, he was talking about, uh, I think, a kind of Anselmian theory of divine ideas and the way in which Anselm is within this broad tradition, thinking that anything that God can create, it, in some sense, has a, a similarity or an imitation of God's own nature. And so he said something like, you know, so whenever you learn about anything in the world, you are thinking God's thoughts after him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a young grad student back then, hadn't realized just how sublime this whole subject I was getting into was. And I remember just being bowled over in the lecture. And then I left the building and was walking around just, oh, it's <laughs> <That's laughs> awesome. Like, in God's mind. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, now, lots of different theories of divine ideas or conceptualism have that wonderful feature that, you know, or, or um, exploring God's mind after him by, uh, by learning about the things that exist. You know, any, mm -hmm. any view that makes God the ultimate um, explanatory source of all that can be. Uh, gets to claim this this wonderful payoff. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But no, so, so so I'd say, yeah. Uh, whatever your whatever your favorite theory is about concept acquisition, uh, you know, you outline a kind of broadly empiricist view. Um, and then once once you have the concept and you you know hold it in mind, you contemplate the giraffe. Well, to the extent that you're that you really have the concept um, that you really are thinking the giraffe that there would be this kind of uh, connection all the way up to all the way up to God. Yeah. Now, um, and, and this, by the way, this depends on, or sorry, this, this holds whether you, whether you agree with uh, people like 
uh, Barclay and Spinoza that the more general your concepts, the more abstracting you have to do, the less real you get, mm -hmm. uh, the less reality or the, the fuzzier the concept. Um, whether you agree with people like that or agree that by um, uh, moving from the, the many closer to the one, you're actually getting more real. closer, more real as you as ascend through abstraction. Whether you, whichever side you're more inclined to, and you could probably guess where I'm more inclined, um, you still get this payoff that by dwelling on a general or abstracted concept, a shareable uh, concept, you're you're in touch with God. Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. Okay, I got I got one more for you and. Um, this has come out lately because of um, like uh, Welty and Anderson's argument, um, the Lord of Non-Contradiction. And the, the, you get to this certain point where you say, where they say God's thoughts um, don't have content because then we'd be committed to propositions and then we'd go right back into the thing. So I wanted on, on your view, um, God's ideas uh what what are the content of God's ideas? Because God has an idea of Parker, but it seems like there's this one-to-one -one correlation between God's idea of me and um, some some uh, aspect of his own nature. So it seems like the content of God's idea of Parker is God and not Parker. But that seems kind of weird because I feel like I should be the content. What, what do you make of that? Yeah. Let me first ask in the... In the case of uh, non-existent possibles, um, do you have an intuition? What's the content of God's idea of um, your possible but non-existent identical twin? Yeah, what's the content of it? Um, man, I used to kind of go for more of like a, a really strong sense of possible worlds. And there's like a bunch of possible worlds and they're all in God's head. Um I don't know what I think about that anymore. Um, yeah, it's it's a. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what what. Yeah, what's the content? It's it's a poss It's a state of affairs that's not actuated. So it's a a possible state of affairs, but it's not a fact. It's not a obtaining state of affairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I um. I think all of that's right, and with the qualification that I, I myself wouldn't want to make a state of affairs something outside of God, <clears throat> that God is free to um, uh, actualize or not. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> you know, there, there's a way of thinking about states of affairs and facts as types of abstract objects. Um, it's kind of it's kind of a funny idiom, really. I mean, the, the way in which the, the reification of states of affairs, um, and and some, I mean, there's so much that I admire about planning. So I don't really, I don't mean to harp on him, but the way that he thinks that it's just so easy, so obvious that states of affairs are are things that uh, that are that are abstract objects that may or may not be actual mm -hmm. um, or instantiated. I mean, it's 
what the heck's the state of affair? Is it a that you have you have the things, you have the causal relations between things, you have relate other kinds of relations between things, and none of that's enough. Then you have to have the the state of affairs of all of that. Um, yeah. so it's a weird multi. Anyway, but the the uh, whatever this thing is, whatever this thing in God's mind is, um, that uh, it 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 can't be about something else because God hasn't made Schmarker. He made Parker only. Uh, That's great. So, so when I when I say you know what is the content of the idea, what I have in mind here could be a little different from what I have in mind by content could could be a little different from uh, uh, contemporary idiom. And so I, I would wait to see whether um, whether my view is is contradicting uh, Welty's view on this point. But what I mean is something like this, that um, there are, uh, in God's idea of Schmarker, your possible non-existent twin brother, there are a, ver- a variety of ways that things can be that somehow make up that idea you know that being human being so many feet tall uh, being disposed to have such and such personality whatever uh now what is the uh the 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 origin of all of those ways that things can be well it's it's something about the divine essence so the, the god's idea of schmarker is a kind of isolated um, consideration of various aspects of God's own essence. So in that sense, the, the content or what the idea is about, it, it really is God or mm-hmm. aspects of God. Um, um, and that, but that would be true even for things that do exist for God's ideas of things that actually exist. So it would still be the case that God's idea of Parker has its content from God himself. Now, so, so then a natural question to put to me here is, well, can you really have it both ways? Can you have God's idea of you being about you <laughs> and God's idea of you being somehow about uh, himself? And, and, and do we have, do we, do we mean the same thing by about in both cases? And I, I haven't thought enough about this. So if you have strong thoughts, uh, either in criticism or, um, or, or help, I'd, I'd appreciate it. But I, I want to say that just at, at first glance, I, not first, not first glance, uh, or first thought, but that I don't see what the big issue would be in saying that, uh, yeah, when God creates you, of course, his, his eternal ideas, uh, of possible creatures that include you, that those, that idea is about you. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, after all, you know, he, the reason, one of the reasons for caring about a theory of divine ideas is the kind of, um, uh, action theoretic role that such a theory is supposed to play in a divine act of creation. 
Yeah. Um, so of course God knows what he's doing when he creates you. He's as a Philo, a, a Philo might put it, he consults uh, the blueprint of Parker mm-hmm. before making the actual Parker. Um, so in that sense, the ideas are about the creatures. Um, but still, I want to say that that's compatible with the ideas also being about God. Yeah, there's um, I, I just took this uh, intensive uh, philosophy of mind class with Brendan Rickabaugh, um, and he talked about uh, uh, dual intentional states. And so there's like you have this, you're looking at a tree, and so uh, the aboutness, the intentionality is directed at the tree, but it's also curved back on yourself because it's there's the what it's likeness if it's a phenomenally conscious state. Yeah. And so I wonder if if we might do something there with like a dual intentional state that like God's idea about Parker is directed at me, but also about himself because I am the product of his divine acting on his divine idea of Parker. And so maybe, maybe something there. I don't know. No, that's nice. And um, we'd, we'd also, we might be able to get a cool theory of God's love for all creatures off the ground here. You know, God, God is aware of himself in the creature. Mm. Uh, he's necessarily a self lover. Uh, and so loves, loves creatures, perhaps among other reasons, but loves creatures insofar as they are, um, like himself. Um, but yeah, I, I think that the dual intention is, uh, is promising and, and sounds at least at this level uh, compatible with, with what I want to be able to say. Awesome, man. Well, this was, this was super fun. Thanks so much for, uh, for going in deep on this stuff, especially the simplicity. I know it's, um, it's a really tricky thing right now and, and bringing up SCOTUS uh, against Aquinas can be really uh, deleterious uh, in certain circles. So I appreciate you going there as well. Uh, it's been so much fun and I can't wait to, uh, to talk about some more of your work sometime. So uh, please come back and, and please talk about more. Um, before we leave, though, where can people find some more of your work if they want to uh, hear from you or, or read your stuff? Oh, thanks. Um, so I, I do have a website, uh, thomasmward.com, uh, T-H-O-M-A-S. Uh, and I have my, uh, I think I have my papers up there information about stuff I work on and then um, a blog that I sometimes, <laughs> sometimes write, but, uh, but thanks Parker for, for having me on. And if I could just take like 30 minutes to say something about all this, you know, I, uh, I, I care a lot about this stuff and I, you know, as a philosopher, you try to follow the argument wherever it leads. Um, however deleterious the consequence, <laughs> but the, the I, I also um you know in, in talking through this stuff, especially the the further away I get from the actual writing of the of the book, Divine Ideas, uh and I'm I'm just I'm struck by uh just how how hard this all is and how the the kind of uh the grind of academic life can make it make people maybe a little more glib than they, than they really think about than than they really are about all this stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. um, you know, my perfect account of simplicity or my perfect, uh, argument for why there can't be abstract objects. And, 
you know, just, I'm just slicing and dicing and ruling out stuff and ruling in other stuff. And, uh, there, there's a kind of MO of, of, uh, breezy confidence that I think philosophy, academic philosophy cultivates in a lot of people. And I, I sometimes see that in myself and, um, but I'm personally at work trying to uproot that to, out of recognition that the stuff that the stuff that we do, I mean, in metaphysics in general, but especially in thinking about divine things, it's, um, it's so high above what we're ultimately capable of. I, I think apart from a gift of a gift of insight. And so we, we work hard, you know, this is not skepticism about rationality by any means, but maybe just a, uh, kind of expression on my own behalf that, uh, uh, while I've written about this stuff and taken stands and said that people are wrong at the same time, I, I really do, uh, uh, recognize, uh, that, that I could be wrong about all this. Yeah. Man, I, I really appreciate that. And I, I appreciate, um, I appreciate the way you do philosophy. I've told you this before about, uh, you bringing in Iluvatar and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's fun. And I, I like that you still want to have fun with philosophy, but then again, what you just said is it's so helpful for, for guys like me. I'm, I'm studying this stuff now. I'm writing my paper on divine ideas for uh, Paul Gold this semester oh, in our ontology class. So awesome. it, it's just so good to hear that, you know, you say that. So if, if you're saying that, then I can say that and I can say, look, I don't know everything and let's have some fun with this and let's put out what we think is true um, let's not, you know, anathema, anathematize people too hard, too quickly. Um, there's probably still a place for that, but let's not do it too, uh, too quickly. So I, I definitely appreciate the, your spirit and the way that you do philosophy. So, so thanks for being an example to guys like me. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for saying that, Parker. You're welcome. Awesome. Well, uh, this has been Parker's Pensies. Uh, it's going to have to do it for us now, folks, but, uh, Lord willing, uh, Tom will be able to come back on and talk about some more of his work. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.